Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about Todd Haynes' 1995 film, Safe. It stars Julianne Morris Carol White, a housewife in the San Fernando Valley in 1987, who becomes mysteriously ill, and she thinks that the chemicals in the environment could be causing it. She ends up going to this self-help sort of new age treatment center called Renwood to try to find more answers and to help herself. This is a really personal, somewhat emotional episode. This film moved me very deeply, and there are things in it that really resonate with me. I share my own struggle with chronic illness, and I also critique self-help ideas that tend to place blame on individuals for their own issues and totally ignore the larger political realities of our lives, plus much more. I talk about all kinds of things and go really deeply into this film because I think it's a masterpiece. I think it is one of Todd Haynes' greatest films, and I think that it continues to have so much more relevance to the world that we live in with global warming, with the toxic environment that we often live in. So I go into all of that. So I hope that you will listen to the full episode and I hope that you enjoy it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work that I'm doing on a monthly basis and you can access rewards and extras like merchandise and extra episodes. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd love to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Christopher, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carol, and Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much. If financial support is not an option for you, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you review it on iTunes, please give me five stars. I would really appreciate that. You can tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films. Or you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Her Head in Films. And you can find links to all those social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So now I'm going to talk about why SAFE struck such a chord with me because of my own personal experiences in my life. And then after that, I'll do a full in-depth look at the film and why I love it so much. choose to talk about a film on the podcast, it's because there is something in the film that strikes a chord for me or that resonates in my own life. The vast majority of the films that I've covered have been really personal for me and me wanting to talk about them, it often starts from seeing the film 
and seeing something of my own experience in it or something that makes me think about something in my own life. There's just always a connection there with my own experience in the world. And that's why the podcast is so personal and that's why it's so emotional. And Safe is probably one of the most personal films for me. And the reason that I chose to talk about it was that I wanted to talk about something really personal in my own life that I have not talked about that is very private for me and that has been hard for me to cope with and to live with for a while now. And I guess that I wanted a space to explore it or to share it with other people in the hopes that maybe they can relate to it or they can see something of their own life or their own story in what I've been through. For me, SAFE is about a lot of things. And when I talk about the film, I'm going to go into a lot of themes and a lot of things that I want to say about it. But first, before I get into all that, I want to talk about the personal connection. And I want to talk about why I chose this film and what it means to my life and to my own experiences. And for me to do that, I have to get really personal and I have to tell you about some things that I don't even know if I feel totally comfortable sharing and things that I've really only put in my diary and that I've only kept private for myself. But it's important for me to talk about this because I don't think it gets talked about enough. And for me, SAFE is really about chronic illness. It's about the body and how the body can betray us and it can stop working properly and the the horror of that really i am someone that lives with chronic health issues and chronic illness and it started for me in 2008 when i was around 19 years old so i've been dealing with this for over a decade for over a decade now the backstory is that after my father died in 2006 when i was a teenager I was around 16 years old. It drastically changed my life. It was emotionally devastating, but it was also financially devastating. And it left my mom and I in a difficult, precarious financial situation. And we were basically living in poverty uh, after he died. So when I graduated high school, which was around 2007. I didn't go to college right out of high school. I've talked about this previously, but I know that I might have new listeners listening who don't know my whole backstory and all that. So instead of going to college, I got a job at a factory. It was a sewing factory. Uh, My job was to sew fabric samples onto cards. And that's what I did. It was a very mind-numbing, difficult job. It was very repetitive. It was in a factory. It was a dehumanizing environment, and it was a physically difficult environment as well. If any of you have done factory work or have done really repetitive work or, or sewing or anything like that. I lived in the rural south. I still live in the rural south. 
and there just weren't a lot of jobs, I will remind you that this was around the recession of 2008. And so jobs were very hard to come by. My mom worked at that factory as well. And so that's how I was able to get a position there. It was my first job ever and right out of high school. And it was, it was just physically difficult. It was very difficult. Plus I was dealing with the grief of losing my father and my grandmother also died in 2007. She died about a year after my father died. So in 2008, I get this job at this factory and it was just physically grueling for me. It was really difficult. I don't know what it did to my body. Like something happened up until that point. I had been a healthy person. I wouldn't say I was like the healthiest person ever or anything. I wasn't running miles every day or, you know, but I had no health issues up to that point. I barely would get a cold. I never, I never got sick or anything like that. So one night in 2008, after I've had this job for a few months, I wake up one night and I can't breathe. I'm struggling to breathe. I'm short of breath. And I've never had that happen before up to that point. And I still remember when I woke up and just something had changed in my body. Something was different. And I knew it because you just know, you know your own body, you know your own level of health. I had never had issues breathing. I mean, yes, I had anxiety. I've always had anxiety and depression since I was a child. And I've had panic attacks and things like that. That was part of my life because my father's death was really traumatic for me. And it did affect me. It did cause me to have anxiety and agoraphobia for a while as well. But when I woke up that night and had trouble breathing, that was not normal. And I remember going in the living room and I put PBS on and I was just trying to calm myself down because it was such a terrifying feeling of being short of breath. I wasn't necessarily gasping for air, but I was short of breath. It, it was just, it's hard to explain, but maybe after you've run a lot or something, you know, where you just feel out of breath, that's what it felt like for me. And so I went to work that day and it persisted. It was just the shortness of breath that I could not get rid of. And it was scary and... I didn't know what to do. And I eventually told my mom, I was like, we're going to have to go to the ER. You know, I'm going to have to, I, I don't have a choice because this was so unusual and I had never felt this before. So I went to an ER, an emergency room. I didn't have health insurance at the time. And I went and they did some tests. You know, they did different things that they do, I guess. And they didn't find anything. They basically gave me a Xanax and sent me home. And I was still short of breath. <laughs> like it had not gone away. And so that night in 2008 changed my life forever. Because ever since then, I've struggled with my health. I don't know if it was the factory. At the time, I was thinking, well, there's lots of particles in the air when you're sewing fabric. There was just lots of, you know, uh, fibers and stuff in the air. I thought maybe that could have affected my breathing or something like that. It persisted. 
I kept feeling the shortness of breath. I went to the ER again. And again, they sent me home. So over the next few years, I just tried to cope with it somehow. But basically, my my health was just never the same. And I went to some other doctors. Uh, when I was in college, I had some health insurance. And I tried to go see other doctors and try to figure out what this was. Because every time I went somewhere, they would do tests and nothing would show up. And then I would basically be blamed. You know, they would blame my anxiety or they would blame whatever. They would just dismiss me, these doctors. And I went to the ER several times looking for help with this, looking for answers. And I didn't get it. I got dismissed. I got nothing. I got no help at all. And I don't know if it was because I was a woman or if it was because I didn't have health insurance Once I had some health insurance at college, I went to some different doctors. I tried (laughs) to, and once again, I would go to these doctors and they would be completely dismissive of what I was telling them. And I was having trouble breathing on a regular basis, on a daily basis, feeling short of breath, having issues with my heart. They would not help me. They just wouldn't. And so for over 10 years now, this is what I've lived with. This is my reality. It's affected my mobility. It's affected the things that I can physically do. But I don't have any diagnosis. I don't have any answer as to why I feel this way. Why one day I woke up and I was short of breath and and feeling this way. And it never went away, really. It's jarring and it's frightening when you... When your body just changes, you enter this new world, a world in which your body won't allow you to do the things that you once did. And to make it even worse, you don't know what's happening to your body and the people who are supposed to help you, to help you get answers about it, refuse to. I mean, I literally had doctors just completely dismiss me. (laughs) Like, I was nothing. Like, that, I've had such negative experiences with doctors that it it almost traumatized me in a way. And without a diagnosis, you can't do anything. You can't get help. You can't get access to resources without, you know, without proof that there is actually something wrong with you. And without insurance, you're helpless and you're powerless. Because you don't have money. (laughs) You don't have like the power to say, well, I want you to do these tests. I want you to do this, this, and this. And it it reminds me of this um, quote by Susan Sontag, this really great writer, philosopher. I'm sure all of you know her. And she writes in her book, Illness as Metaphor. She has this really great quote that I think sums up a lot of what I've struggled with. And, um, and really resonates with me. She wrote, quote, Illness is the night side of life, a more onerous citizenship. Everyone who is born holds dual citizenship in the kingdom of the well and in the kingdom of the sick. Although we all prefer to use the good passport, sooner or later each of us is obliged, at least for a spell, to identify ourselves as citizens of that other place. 
And that's what happened to me that when I was 19, I entered this other country, you know, this other citizenship of the sick, of the ill. And what made it even worse was that I had no answer and I still don't. And I, so without an answer or a diagnosis, there's no way to fix it. There's no way to solve it. That, that increases the pain that, you know, something's wrong with you. You know, something's wrong with your body, but nobody will listen to you. It's like you're screaming and nobody can hear you. And I don't share this in order for people to pity me or, you know, to say, woe is me or, um, to make people feel bad for me. And I'm certainly not seeking unsolicited medical advice from people. Like, please don't do that. (laughs) Please don't give people advice if they're not asking for it. But I want to share the, the pain of this reality of chronic illness, of chronic health issues, and the added pain of not understanding what's wrong with your body, what the answer is, or what you should do. I consider it, it a, I consider it a kind of hell. I truly believe that it is. It is like this hell that I'm trapped in every day because I'm trapped in my body. I'm trapped in this body that does not work properly, that is struggling really to live. And it's just, I've lived with this for over a decade and it wears you down. A third of my life at this point has been lived in some form of pain or discomfort because of this, because of my issues with my heart and my breathing. I'm almost 30 years old and this is what I've known. And I I can't do the things that other people my age can do. And I just think most people cannot comprehend this or what it does to your life. The fear that it causes, the struggle, the terror really that it um, creates, the isolation that you feel because you can't really, you can't live the way other people do. You can't like keep up with them, I guess. You can't do the same things and people can't handle that. They don't understand it. And I've really stopped even mentioning my issues or saying that I don't feel well or talking about being in in pain. I don't talk about it to anyone. I don't share it because I don't really see any point because often people just, they don't know, I guess they don't know what to do. You know, I guess they don't know how to react But I guess I just also want to say, if somebody opens up to you about their pain, please imagine what it takes for them to do that, for them to try to break that isolation and that loneliness. And if they open up and say, I'm in pain or I'm struggling, to not ignore that, to not ignore them, but to also not judge them or lecture them or tell them what they should do or give them medical advice or any kind of advice that they're not asking for. I would say that the compassionate response would be, I'm sorry that you're hurting. What can I do for you? You know, and I think that would be a more humane reaction. And unfortunately, when I have tried to open up about things with people, whether it's my mental health or my physical health, 
usually, I guess I just trust the wrong people or something. I don't know why I do, but I guess I just keep doing that for some reason. I guess I'm, I used to be too trusting and I've stopped doing that now where I just don't trust at all because when I have opened up and what it took for me to do it and then instead of getting like a compassionate response or something, I got unsolicited advice or I got completely ignored. (laughs) So I've just decided that I'm not going to share it and this will probably be the only time that I do open up about it. I've alluded to my health issues on the podcast before, but never gone into depth about it. But it is something that I live with on a daily basis and that I struggle with constantly, pretty much. And it has profoundly changed my life in every conceivable way. I never really feel good. I just don't. (laughs) I have good, I have like better days, I guess. Like I'll have some days where I'm okay or, or able to cope and then I'll have other days where I'm really struggling and I'll never feel better (laughs) really I've had to let that idea go that I will ever feel better there are just I guess tolerable days and then there are days that are not as tolerable (laughs) where it's just harder for me to survive and and to get through so I see a lot of myself in Carol you know, Carol is someone in safe who there's something wrong with her. There's something wrong with her body and she doesn't know what it is and she doesn't know the source of it or the cause of it, which means that she doesn't know how to fix it or solve it or make it go away. Um, she's struggling with the pain of that and the fear and the isolation of it as well. And so that's why this film really cuts very deeply to the bone for me. Like, this film just ripped me open. (laughs) I mean, I first saw it in 2014, and then watching it five years later again, I think it hit me even harder this second time because because I'm still dealing with health issues, and it's like it wears you down a lot. And so I see a lot of myself in Carol. I see that that loneliness, I see that fear and terror of what is wrong with my body and why won't anybody believe me and why won't anybody help me? Of course, me and her are in different class situations where she has money and I don't and she has access to certain resources and treatments that I don't. But that core of it, that horror of the body, of the body going wrong, of something seriously being wrong with you and not knowing what it is the not knowing compounds the pain and the anguish and the fear and I think because the mainstream medical people can't give an answer to Carol that I think she's even more susceptible to the self-help messages in this film because the doctors won't listen to her and they won't give her an answer So she turns to the self-help, you know, of Renwood and that whole world to find some kind of stability, to find an identity, to find resources or tools that will help her survive what she's going through. And I'm not a self-help person, but due to my health issues, I have turned to, I guess, alternative things to try to help me cope with 
the anxiety and the depression and the toll that um, having health issues can take on your mental health, but also just trying to keep my body um, from being so anxious and being so afraid um, and, and keep my body feeling as decent, I guess, as it can. So I'll do like affirmations where I'll write down affirmations. Um, I'll do meditation. Meditation has been a really big one for me that is it's helped me. Like when I have episodes, like intense episodes of shortness of breath or things like that, where I will, um, I'll try to meditate or after I have a really bad episode and I'm feeling that fear and that anxiety, then meditation will help me cope with that. And I like to listen to like really ambient music, like drone music, I guess you could say, or, um, just ambient music. I don't know how to describe it. But sometimes I'll listen to like ocean waves or even whales. I love the sound of whales in the ocean, the sound of birds and nature and things like that. Um, I find that that is calming, you know, and, and soothing for me. I've started doing aromatherapy. Um, I really like like the scent of lavender and things like that. Those are things that help me cope with the anxiety and the fear And I just do these things to help me better survive on a daily basis and just cope with whatever my body is feeling at that moment. It's like this is my new normal that I'm having to adjust to. It's just I've turned to things like that. It doesn't, I don't believe in self-help. I don't believe that I caused whatever's wrong with me. I don't believe that it's in my head. (laughs) I don't believe that I'm making it up or or (laughs) that it, isn't real or something like that but when nobody will help you and you don't have a lot of resources sometimes you do have to turn to to things to to help you survive it and that's something I relate to a bit about Carol I mean I don't completely buy into that self-help stuff at all but meditation and aromatherapy and just things that things that comfort me and soothe me those those are things that really help me dealing with a chronic illness, you know, and my chronic health issues. So I wanted to talk about why this film resonated so much with me and why I wanted to talk about it. Because it's it's a personal experience for me that it isn't easy for me to talk about. I think when it comes to illness, it is hard for people to, to share it because there is a certain amount of shame that you feel that you're sick. And there's this feeling that people will judge you because in our culture, um, especially in Western culture, we tend to blame people for their own health issues. Health is very weighted with ideas of morality and character. That if you're sick, you've caused it. You must not eat healthy enough. You must not exercise enough. There's something that you've done wrong. That's the way I see the whole obsession with wellness and that sort of thing in our culture is that it's just another way to blame people for their own issues and their own illness. And I don't think it's productive and I actually hate it. I I hate that we blame people for those things. It's not easy for me to talk about. It's very difficult, in fact. But I've shared all this probably too much. (laughs) I'll probably regret even opening up about this. It's just not something that I talk about with other people. 
But I do it in case there is somebody listening that might have a chronic illness or might have chronic health issues or might be going through something similar as I have and they're feeling isolated or alone or they're just struggling with it. I mean, you never know who could be listening and I did want to be open and honest about it because I think it helps to explain why this film um, moved me and resonated with me in such a deep way is because I think maybe a sick person watching Safe perhaps watches it in a different way than an able-bodied healthy person who has no idea what it's like to be in the, in the shoes of Carol when I myself know what it's like. I know what it's like to struggle to breathe or to just wake up one day and you've entered this other world, this world of being ill, of being, of having um, something wrong with your body. And I don't think that people who have not experienced that can comprehend it you know that they take so many things for granted they take their independence for granted they take their ability to do physical things for granted there are people who can't do those things and it it profoundly changes your life and so I see parts of myself in Carol and it's why this film means so much to me why it resonates with me and why I wanted to talk about it but I just wanted to share my personal experience off the bat, you know, first and then go into the film itself so that you have this foundation and you understand where I'm coming from and why I have the views of the film and the ideas of the film that I do. It, it's rooted really in that, in that personal experience that I have with illness as a woman and not being believed and being dismissed and not knowing what's wrong with me, just like Carol doesn't know what's wrong with her. So my identification with Carol is just so intense. That's why I wanted to share some of my own personal experiences with chronic illness. So now, obviously, I want to talk about the film itself and share my thoughts and feelings about it. I didn't expect it, but watching this film again was a really intense experience. It has become a really important film to me. It's it's actually really rare for me to encounter films like this that resonate so deeply with my own life and that bring up a lot of memories and feelings and I I get really emotionally connected to certain films. Longtime listeners know this. That's what this podcast is about. It it really was born from the fact that I would watch movies and I would have such a personal experience with certain films and that because of my own loneliness and isolation, I didn't have anybody to share that with. And the podcast came out of me wanting to share that and to express it and articulate it somehow because I just thought that was important. I I think it's important how films affect us. And I do encounter films that absolutely devastate me, that I just sort of um, unravel when I watch them, because they evoke such strong emotions, and they, 
they are saying something about me. They're saying something about my life. And I'm seeing that in the film, in this work of art, I'm identifying so deeply with the woman, usually, in the film. And it happened to me with Jonathan Glazer's film, Birth. I talk about that film all the time on this podcast. It comes up, and I have an episode about it. Everything that I talk about in this episode will be in the show notes, So when I talk about interviews that Todd Haynes did and research and my own episodes that I've done, all of that is in the show notes. Another film would be Barbara Loden's 1970 film Wanda. I have an episode about that. I just deeply identified with the women in those films. With Birth, it was about grief. With Wanda, it was about her inability to really cope with life. And her failure as a human being in just about every way. And her working class status and experience. That just, all of that resonates with me um, very deeply. And so with Safe, I wasn't expecting it because I saw the film in 2014. And I'm going to share with you some of my initial thoughts about it at that time. But re-watching it five years later... I just didn't expect it to have the emotional toll that it has on me. You know, some films I'll watch and I like them and I'll do an episode about them and then I just sort of move on. And then there are films that really get into my bloodstream, they get into my system and I can't get them out. And they become sort of defining films. They become something that I can point to and say... This says something about my life. I think that is one of the most powerful things about art. I'm not saying that we should only consume art that that is personally connected to our own lives. I do think an important function of art is to learn about different people and to put yourself in someone else's shoes and to hear stories that are different from your own. And that's an important part of why I watch cinema, you know, why I watch a Ozu film or why I watch a Sachajit Ray film, you know, to take me into these other places, these other cultures. But then there are films that that become part of you and that uh, speak to you in a very deep and almost ineffable way. And you don't know how you ever lived without these films because they they explain you to yourself they I mean maybe there's something that that you didn't realize about your life or about yourself and you've never been able to put it into words this is a powerful thing about literature too is that when you read something you know when I mean I've read passages say of like a Virginia Woolf novel like The Waves or Mrs. Dalloway and I'll and she has articulated things in language that I've only ever felt in an intangible and nonverbal way and that I've never been able to say or pinpoint. Sylvia Plath has that kind of effect on me as well or uh, Clarice Lispector is another powerful one for me or Marguerite Dura. These are women that when I read their work I feel like they have put something in words that I can't even speak, and they do sort of write the unwritable, I think. 
And so I wonder if there are also directors who film the unfilmable, that they put these emotions and these experiences and they put them in a visual form and they put them on the screen. You never thought that you'd see yourself reflected in cinema because for so long and, and really most of the time, films are about the beautiful and the glamorous and and I much prefer films about real people and everyday ordinary lives. I'm often attracted to stories about women who live on the margins, women who don't fit into society, women who are invisible and forgotten and overlooked, women who struggle to live, who are struggling with grief or poverty or loneliness. Those are the women that speak the most to me. You know, something comes to mind like Agnes Varda's film Vagabond that stars Sandrine Bonaire. That's another film that I I feel very deeply about the, the girl that's in that film. Her name's Mona. And her um, her life as a drifter, her life on the margins of society, the way that she's really forgotten in a lot of ways. Because I myself feel forgotten. I feel invisible. There's just a lot there. And so film just is such a powerful medium in that way and in the way that it can show aspects of life and maybe bring us to certain revelations or epiphanies in our own lives. And so safe has become part of that group of films for me with Wanda, with birth, maybe with Vagabond or something like the double life of Veronique by Christoph Kishlovsky as well, that it is speaking to me. And it's saying something that I haven't seen before in a film and it's reflecting some of my own life in it. And with Carol White in this film, it's obviously her illness. It's her difficulty with her body and the loneliness and the isolation that, that comes from that. So watching this film, I'm, I guess I'm trying to communicate how intense it was for me. And I actually couldn't watch it all the way through. It took me several days to watch it because I had to keep pausing it and stopping it. And it was like a slower experience to watch the film because it was cutting so close to the bone in that way. And I didn't feel like I could handle a lot of it at a time because I think it's a brutal film. I think it is. I don't think it's a film that is about hope or about triumph. And so much when disability or illness or things with the body, so many times when they're represented in, in pop culture, in media, there is this triumph that happens. And Todd Haynes himself in interviews talked about how safe was a bit inspired by, I guess in the 80s, there was something called like um, the disease movie or the disease TV movie of the week or something like that, that would... I guess show people who were dealing with sickness and who were able to sort of overcome it or it would usually end in sort of a, a hopeful way, this message of overcoming. And I think obviously that SAFE is the antithesis of that. I don't think it's a film that gives you a lot of hope or lifts you up in any kind of way. 
but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have important things to say about the world that we live in. Even though it was made in 1995 and it's set in 1987, so it's a commentary on the 1980s in a lot of ways, but because it's made in the 90s, it's also a commentary on the 90s. And I think even all these years later, over two decades later, it continues to resonate. It continues to have things to say about our society. The film for me is really, it's divided really into two parts. There is the first part where Carol is becoming ill. She's having issues with fumes and chemicals and environmental illness And then she, the second part of the film is about, I guess, her search for an answer, her search for an identity, I think, too, when she goes to Renwood and starts to take in a lot of this self-help philosophy. And so I'll be talking mainly about those two things, about Carol's descent, I guess you could say, into this illness, and then her going to Renwood and what she's trying to find there. And there's just so much that I want to talk about. It's it's kind of overwhelming. Sometimes I know exactly what I want to say about a film and everything is planned out. And then other times I get really overwhelmed that there's just so much that I want to say. But before I get into that, I want to share with you an email that I wrote in 2014 when I first saw Safe. I sent this email to, to a friend because I had just uh, started it or I was watching it and I wanted to share my thoughts at that moment when I was watching it. And I think five years later to read this email is really fascinating to me. And I want to share it because I think that I articulated some things in it that I would like to say anyways. And some of what's in the email are things that I'm going to cover in this review. So I wrote, last night I started safe by Todd Haynes. It's creepy and haunting with this otherworldly electronic score. It's about the vulnerability of our bodies, the toxicity of our environment, how our bodies can be contaminated, how our bodies can stop functioning the way we think they should, and maybe the source of contamination is outside of us, but maybe it's within us and emanates from some defective part of ourselves. Bodies are always so messy They bleed and break and deteriorate, and one day they simply stop. And isn't that terrifying, to be housed in this flesh? The upper classes have always been fearful of contamination by the poor, the other, the marginalized. David Wojnarowicz has this amazing part in his memoir, Close to the Knives, when he talks about wanting to invade and spoil the suburbs with his disease. He had AIDS. And the 80s was a time when people were isolated and demonized for being sick. People didn't want to touch them, drink after them, for fear of being contaminated. You see this repeating with the Ebola outbreak, but also the upper classes who now refuse to vaccinate their children out of the fear that the vaccine itself, rather than protecting their children's lives, imperils it, contaminates it. We can't just think of our own bodies, but the bodies of others. What does it mean to be human when to love, to bond ourselves with others? We must allow our bodies to be corrupted, to exchange bodily fluids, live in the same space, 
deal with excrement and snot and all the things that leak from our bodies. The odors, the liquids, and when we isolate ourselves because we fear that contamination, that touch that could bring disease, when we push away the other, the ill, what do we lose? I think of this obsession with germs we have. Hand sanitizer is everywhere. I myself use it, especially in winter because I fear becoming sick. But germs actually strengthen our immune system. The bad stuff makes us better. It allows our bodies to become robust and healthier. We have to let in the germs, the contamination. And what happens when we are seen as the source of the contamination? When society sees us as other, as infectious, as untouchable. We hide the ill away from sight. We can't look at them. We, can, we can't face the mortality of our bodies, the decay of other bodies. But what comes from confronting it? What can we learn? How can it enrich us to see that, yes, we are vulnerable and able to die and illness can come at any time? So that's what I wrote. In 2014, the Ebola outbreak was happening in Africa. That was on my mind. I think I was reading Vonarovich's, uh, some of his work, and I love him. He's a great writer. So when I was watching the film, I was thinking about AIDS, about the other, about marginalization, about the way that people who are ill or who are disabled or, or, some, or anything like that, how they're often marginalized in society. And so I just wanted to share some of those thoughts. And I'll probably talk a bit more about some of the things in that email. But I wanted to share with you just those initial emotions and thoughts that I had in 2014, because I think it was kind of interesting when I came across that email and to think about what I was thinking when I first watched the film. And then, of course, what I'm thinking about and, and feeling now that I watch it for a second time. So this film is set in 1987 in the San Fernando Valley in California. And it's about a woman named Carol White. And she is played by Julianne Moore. And she has a husband, Greg White. And she has a stepson. Uh, I think he's named Rory. Yeah, he is. And her husband is played by Xander Berkeley. He's like a really well-known character actor. He's actually an actor that I've only seen when he's been older. So it was interesting to see him in this film so young. <laughs> I wasn't used to it. But um, this was... I think the first film that Julianne Moore did with Todd Haynes and they have gone on to do quite a few more films together, including far from heaven and most recently wonderstruck. And they just have this, uh, this fascinating relationship and, and I love the work that they have done together. So it's set in the eighties and the film begins with this swirling sort of synth music. Um, like a synthesizer and all through the film you'll hear this music and it starts from really the the opening scene and it's this music that is fascinating to me it reminds me a lot of stranger things obviously because they're both set in the 80s but what this music does is that it sets up almost this otherworldly atmosphere to the film of something very sort of uh like alien in a way. I can't describe it, but that synthesizer throughout the film is, it sets up, I think, this feeling of dread that the film has. Like all through the film, there is just dread. And I think this is like a horror film. 
and Todd Haynes said as much. In an interview with Allison McLean in 1995 for Bomb Magazine, Todd Haynes said that the film is, quote, a completely latent horror film where everyday life is the most frightening of all, unquote. And I absolutely agree. And what was fascinating to me about this opening scene is that we see this car driving down this road and it arrives at Carol White's house, the house where she lives with her husband, Greg. And so this, this swirling synthesizer music is going, her and Greg are the ones in the car and it rolls up to this huge house. Immediately we are rooted in this particular enclave, right? Of wealth and safety, unquote, unquote. And it fascinated me that when we got to Carol's house, that she actually has a gate around her home. That gate is obviously a symbol of some kind of safety. And so I think immediately Todd Haynes is asking us to think about what is safe. What does it mean to be safe? What is safety? And what's so interesting about this film is that Carol and people like her, you know, people who live in suburbia or people who live in these huge, huge homes in very safe communities with low crime, often they are the ones that have the gated stuff. They have all the security. They have, you know, big fences around their homes. They're so terrified that something bad's going to happen. They're so obsessed with keeping bad things out and bad people out. And so they have this gate around their house. But what ends up happening to Carol, and or I guess this is the question of the film, is does her illness come from outside or does it come from within? Is it psychosomatic or is it the environment that she lives in? Is it the fumes and the chemicals? And what's so brilliant about the film is that it never answers that. And it never gives us, it never tells us for certain. I think Todd Haynes trusts us as an audience to decide for ourselves, do we think that it's caused by outside? Or do we think that it's emanating or it's coming from within Carol, that she is having some kind of, I guess, psychological break or, or something like that? Or is she maybe a hypochondriac or, or overreacting to the fumes, to the things that she comes in contact with? We don't ever know fully in the film, but it raises both possibilities. And I love that ambiguity in the film personally, that it could be psychosomatic perhaps, or it could be these chemicals, these toxins, these things that are causing it. So even though Carol has that gate and she is trying to keep all the bad stuff out, the thing that is the real danger for her comes from within her own body, right? That she's trying to protect herself constantly. I guess all of us are. We're always trying to protect ourselves. We use hand sanitizer for germs And there was a really bad flu outbreak a couple of years ago. And I started to use hand sanitizer even more because this was a flu that was killing a lot of people. It was pretty intense a few years ago. And I was terrified of getting the flu. I went and got the vaccine. And like I did everything I could to not get this flu because it scared me so much. 
And so all of us do these things to try to keep out bad things, whether, you know, locking your doors, having a gate, whatever. But then sometimes the worst things and the most terrible things, there is no protection from them. That something happens in your body the way it did to me, where I just woke up one day and my body had changed and my health had changed and there was nothing I could do about it. There was no way I could protect myself from it. So you can have all these barriers, all these protections in place and the bad things can still happen to you. You can still be unsafe because in life we're never 100% safe, are we? And I think the film raises that, is that are we ever really safe? And I would also argue that with what's happening at the southern border here in the United States, I think that Carol, I think that this film is also asking us to think about the other, you know. And Todd Haynes has said in interviews that he did want to say something about AIDS. He was trying to say something about illness, about how people become othered through that illness And how people become terrified of contamination, of what they consider to be contamination. And if you think about the way that immigration gets talked about, especially with Mexico and with uh, people coming across the border into the United States, I would argue that there is language used that is similar of this infestation. Oh, they're taking over the country. This very xenophobic, anti-immigrant rhetoric that is so dangerous and violent. It takes on language like that of, of the other and of not wanting our country to be contaminated by them and infested by them. You know, oh, they're coming over the border. They're threatening us. We need to put up this this barrier, this wall. And the wall becomes this huge symbol of keeping the bad thing out, the bad people out. The, the criminals and the gangs and the rapists, the way that Trump has uh, stereotyped and dehumanized Mexican people. And, and people from South America and Central America. And so even though the film is not explicitly about that, I know it makes me think about that language and about the idea of the wall itself and what we're trying to keep out, what we're so terrified of. You see that in safe, you know, people are terrified of what could get in, what could get in their bodies, germs, things like that. And so I think it asks us to think about that, about the way that people are othered, you know, and marginalized and become demonized as well. Because over the course of this film, as Carol gets ill, she becomes othered. You know, she, people don't want to be around her. They, she scares them. And so through illness, you can become othered as well. But, um, you know, that gate was just, the gate around her house was just such a big symbol to me. And I just couldn't help but see parallels with our own country, wanting to put up this wall and keep out what we consider to be like a contagion or, or bad people, you know, and how terrible and dangerous that rhetoric is really. So Carol lives really a very safe, beautiful life. She's got a husband with a good job. She's got a stepson. She's got a nice house. She's thin. She's beautiful. She's white. (laughs) She's healthy at the beginning of the film. Her life is just perfect in so many ways. She has a garden. 
she just has this picture perfect life and from the work that I've seen by Todd Haynes I haven't seen all his films but I've seen this Far From Heaven which I'm going to be doing an episode about Carol Carol was a big big hit for him recently a few years ago I think Todd I think Todd is interested in what's behind that picture and he does this in several of his films he has one about Karen Carpenter called Superstar where he just uses Barbie dolls to explore the life of Karen Carpenter and her anorexia so I think that he's always interested in what's behind that picture perfect life whether it's the wholesomeness of Karen Carpenter the technicolor sadness of Far From Heaven uh, and in Far From Heaven Julianne Moore plays a woman named Kathy who seems to have this perfect life these are women with charmed and beautiful lives but they don't necessarily feel that way about their lives at all or they feel incomplete in some way or at odds with their environment their lives seem to be going well and then something interrupts those lives it's anorexia for Karen Carpenter for Carol it's disease for Kathy it's desire it's forbidden desire I guess you could say and often these interruptions are indications of something not being right that something is wrong with that perfect life Todd said as much in an interview he did this interview with Collier Shore for Art Forum in 1995 and he said quote I think the illness is the only thing that's telling her the truth in the movie illness is the thing that makes her look at her life in a completely different way and forces her out of these patterns unquote and he also says in that interview with Allison McLean for bomb magazine in 1995 he says quote basically safe is on the side of the disease and not the cure it's the disease that completely opens Carol's eyes and makes her rethink her life and the cure that returns her to the sealed off existence unquote so when this disease starts to come into Carol's life it's actually an indication that something is deeply wrong that her life is not picture perfect not by a long shot and her descent into illness is pretty quick one day she just wakes up and she isn't feeling well it's this scene where she's in her um she's in her silk robe and she goes and she sits at her kitchen table and she's drinking milk and something's off about her something has changed in her body and she can feel it there's really no explanation for it you know Todd will throw in a few things like there's this scene where Carol is driving and there's these large trucks around her emitting these exhaust fumes and they trigger this very intense coughing fit she's coughing and she cannot stop it's a really terrifying scene she has lost control and I think so much of uh, this film is about losing control that Carol's life at the beginning before she gets sick is very controlled it's very monitored you know the garden is perfect the house is perfect everything is in its place everything is safe and sound and controlled and once she starts to become ill she is out of control we are out of control when we're sick and that brings terror and that brings fear and it brings instability and that's what starts to happen to her in this coughing fit in particular 
and she goes into this parking garage and she is still coughing and she's gasping for breath until she finally gets control of herself again. So there's these, like I said, there's these indications that there are things in her environment that could be triggering these episodes that she's having. She, she just starts to feel bad, you know, and she goes to the doctor. Her husband tells her to go to the doctor and he doesn't find anything wrong with her. He says that, or she says that maybe she's just stressed. She had been on a fruit diet. Maybe that's what caused it. Maybe she's drinking too much dairy. Just these very random things that probably have nothing to do with why she's feeling the way she is. But that doctor throughout the film will recur and the tests don't show anything. He does tests and he doesn't see anything wrong. Therefore, something must not be wrong with her. And this is an important issue, I think, because we know studies have been done to show that women's pain and women's illness are not taken seriously by doctors. That when a man says he has certain symptoms and a woman says she has certain symptoms, they get treated completely differently. A good example is like heart attacks. That, you know, when men go in with certain types of pain, they're treated quickly. When other times when women go in and say, oh, I have these symptoms, they're told it's anxiety. They're told it's this or it's that. When in fact, it's a heart attack or it's something else. And even diseases like chronic fatigue syndrome or lupus, things that primarily only affect women, do not get the attention. They don't get the research. And sometimes there are people, there are doctors or the medical establishment that question whether these diseases exist at all or if they're only in the heads of women. Because for centuries we've had this idea of hysteria, that women are hysterical, that women are not to be trusted when they talk about their own bodies. I myself have encountered this and lived it and lived the pain of it, of sitting there with a doctor and saying, this is what I'm feeling this is what I'm going through and getting nowhere, not being listened to, being told that it's something else when it isn't, that it's in my head. And Todd Haynes, it was important to him to explore that in the film. That That is a big part of it. And in that Collier Shore interview for Art Forum, he talks about this. And he says, quote, the history of illness associated with women has been a continual interest in my films, from superstar to safe. I loved what seemed particularly inexplicable about environmental illness when I first read about it, how it was affecting housewives. It wasn't until men in the workplace started to come down with similar kinds of sensitivities that environmental illness became something the medical establishment would even begin to investigate. The ability to dismiss illness as feminine and the way illness completely undermines identity are what SAFE explores, unquote. That is why this film hits me so hard, because I've been Carol. I've been Carol at the doctor. And I've also been Carol with this inexplicable illness, this inexplicable thing happening to my body and the way that it completely destabilizes your identity and who you don't know who you are anymore. And that's what starts to happen to Carol is that she starts these coughing fits. There's another scene when she goes to a baby shower and she starts to um, not be able to breathe. She starts to hyperventilate. 
that's why I think there's like a horror dimension to this film. Like to see her coughing, to see her gasping for breath, it's terrifying to watch. It is terrifying to see her so out of control of her body and the fear that you can see in her face in Julianne Moore, the way that she acts these scenes. And it's just, it's abs- to me, this is like a horror film. <laughs> it really is. As she becomes ill, you know, with the coughing fit and then with, and then there's this time when she goes to uh, get a perm done and, you know, you see the, you see the chemicals being poured on her hair and she gets a nosebleed. And then at that baby shower, when she hyperventilates and she's gasping for breath, once all this starts to happen to her, she just starts to become desperate for an answer to it, to try to understand what is wrong with her. She becomes completely destabilized by it. And there, I think there, it unravels her in a way because she doesn't know what is wrong. And it's that not knowing. And so I've had that in my own life. And so I think that's why this film, because it's looking at the way that women's illness is treated in this world. And yes, we've had feminism for several decades now, and women are fighting for this, fighting in the medical sphere to get women's diseases and illnesses taken seriously by doctors. But it is still very, very difficult. And I think there are certain illnesses that are feminized. And women are not believed when they talk about their own bodies. And that is so connected to misogyny and sexism and to stereotypes about women and their bodies and how emotional and hysterical they are. And those things live on. Those ideas continue to affect women's everyday lives and their everyday lived reality. And that hasn't changed. This film was made in 95, but that has not changed now in 2019. There was a really great documentary I saw called Unrest, and it's by Jennifer Brea, and she has chronic fatigue syndrome, and it's about how she has had to try to survive it because doctors would not help her. She could not find any help for her illness and what she was going through, and it's a very powerful documentary that looks at some of this stuff as well, the way that women are treated within the healthcare world and within the medical establishment. And SAFE shows that. It absolutely shows that. And so Carol just starts to really become destabilized by what she's going through. She's so alone in this film, too. Like later on when she goes to Renwood and she'll sort of quarantine herself and separate herself. But something I noticed about her life, sort of before she gets ill or in the early stages of her illness is how alone she is and separate she is. Um, Many of the scenes will show her by herself, like laying on the couch watching TV or sitting in the kitchen or walking outside in her garden at night. Todd Haynes does a really great job with the wide shots in this film. He is always situating Carol and grounding her in her environment, in the world that is around her. So when he shows her at that baby shower or he shows her in the living room or he shows her in the garden, he very rarely does any kind of close-ups with that. It's always from afar and you're seeing her in this environment and you're seeing how alone and separate she is from it. 
Um, there's a scene where she is having dinner with her husband and stepson, but then there's this wide shot when she goes into the kitchen and you see her in the kitchen alone or, um, and then you see the husband and the son in the dining room. There is just such a distance between them. And I think she's already quarantined in a way. I think emotionally she is separate and quarantined from people even before she becomes ill. And her husband has a hard time dealing with her illness. There are several scenes in the film where, like, one night I think he wants to have sex. And she talks about how she's having a headache or she's not feeling well. And he gets quite upset. He gets, like, really angry. She says, you know, I can't help it. You know, he cannot handle her illness. And I think a lot of people, when they have a a family member or a loved one or a friend when that person becomes sick, when that person, whether it's physical illness or mental illness, they don't know how to be supportive. They don't know how to be there. They just don't. I think that's partly why illness is so isolating and why you end up so alone is because people, you know, if you can't be like them, say you can't go out to a restaurant because you have agoraphobia or say you can't go out to the mall or do something because you have trouble breathing and you get short of breath and tired easily. Once your mobility becomes limited for whatever reason and you can't do the normal things with family or friends, it creates this distance between you and them. And they don't always try to bridge that distance. You know, they don't try to understand what you're going through. They think you're making it up or they think, oh, it can't be as bad as you're saying it is, you know. They don't understand it and they don't even try to. And so they can't really be a support. They can't be there for you the way that you need. And I think people who are ill, it can be really hard to find friends, to find support, to find a sense of belonging. Because people who are able-bodied and healthy and who don't know what it's like to every day wake up and think, am I going to feel good today? Am I going to be able to get through this day? Or to be so exhausted during the day or at the end of the day that you can't really do a lot. It can create such a a distance between you and other people. And I think when you become ill, you find out who's really there for you. I think you find out who your true friends are and, and who the people are that you can trust. But it's not easy because people can't handle it. I think you become a reminder to them maybe of their own mortality and of their own vulnerability. You know, people who are healthy think that they'll always be healthy. That, But like Susan Sontag reminds us, we all hold that dual citizenship in the, in the sick, in the world of the sick, and in the, the world of the healthy. And all of us, if we live long enough, are going to go through illness. We're going to go through something like that. And it can completely upend your world. My father had health issues that he struggled with. It was really painful for him. It was very isolating for him. His family and friends were not there for him. We really, you know, him, me, and my mom, we relied on each other once he got sick. And we really only had each other because people just drop away like flies. They can't handle it. They don't want to try to be there. They don't know how to be there. There is such a, I think, a deficit of compassion in our country, in our culture. I I don't understand why. 
I mean, if anything, I guess my illness and what I've been through has made me even more sensitive to what other people go through. And I try to be compassionate towards other people and what they're experiencing. But unfortunately, I don't often receive that same compassion in return. And that's what can be so painful and hurtful about it. So Carol, she has these really shallow relationships with people. She has friends that she goes to lunch with. She goes to the baby shower. She has her husband. But these are not really deep, meaningful relationships or connections. She is primarily in this film completely alone and isolated. And that's something that I could relate to a lot. And something that moved me about Carol was that loneliness and how she was struggling to find herself and to cope with what was happening with her body. And she was having to do it completely on her own. And she has another thing that happens where she has like this seizure when she goes to the dry cleaner. They're spraying something in there. I don't know what it is. I don't know if they were fumigating. And she has a seizure on the floor And she ends up in the hospital as a result. And again, the doctors run those tests and they don't find anything. There's a point at the film where they have her go to a therapist, to a psychiatrist. That's before the seizure, actually. I'm getting my timeline messed up. She does go to the psychiatrist and he asks her, what's going on in you? He says that to her. I I thought this was a fascinating scene for some reason. Because I don't think Carol can answer what's going on inside of her with this illness that take, that's taking over her body, with her shallow relationships with other people. I don't think she can put it into language. I don't think she has the language for what's happening inside of her. I don't think she'd even know how to articulate it. But I think that she knows something is wrong with her. She knows it. And nobody will believe her. That's also part of the horror of the film is not just that something's happening to you, but that no one will believe that it's happening to you, that it must be in your head. You must be making it up. It must not be real. That's also part of the horror of this film, not just that her body is deteriorating. Her body is almost rebelling or staging this rebellion or this insurrection I guess against the environment that she lives in but that she can't get anybody mainly the men all around her to listen to her or to believe her she's starting to feel unsafe in so many ways she feels unsafe in her body in her life in her environment she doesn't really fit in the world anymore that she once inhabited of this very upper class elite social environment where she went to the gym and danced to Madonna, Madonna's lucky star and Belinda Carlisle's heaven is a place on earth. I love that song by Belinda Carlisle. Actually, (laughs) I was actually listening to it a few weeks ago and I'm just so in love with that song and have been my entire life. Just this rarefied world I guess you could say like I noticed how the women that Carol was friends with they were just so shallow and superficial in a lot of ways they all had this same kind of high-pitched breathy sort of voice to them they all dressed very hyper feminine like they're very hyper feminine in the way that they perform their femininity and almost infant like 
the way that some of the women were dressed with the the heels and the hose and the frills on their dresses and the ruffles on their dresses they were almost dresses that you would put on a doll that's how these women came off as like I guess you could say these Stepford wives you know of what's expected of a housewife in the San Fernando Valley in the 1980s to be this picture perfect postcard wife and mother and woman and that's what these women had to live in is to be this this perfect model of what a woman is and Carol has to fit in that too because for a while she dresses like that she has those um those outfits and she has the curly hair after she gets the perm and she looks meticulous in the way that she presents herself but she starts to unravel all of that starts to change you know with the coughing with the baby shower with um you know where she is gasping for breath and struggling to breathe that seizure in the dry cleaners um and all of that and as as her illness starts to get progressively worse physically carol changes she no longer looks the way that she did at the beginning of the film because she starts to become terrified of chemicals and toxins she tells a friend at one point you know i can't wear makeup anymore because the makeup irritates my eyes or something like that no longer does she wear the dresses anymore instead she wears like slacks and a simple shirt i think she's even scared of the clothes that she wore before and perhaps maybe the toxins that are in them she takes all these supplements there's this scene where you see her with all these bottles of the supplements and she's taking them and at the same time she has these headphones on where she's listening to this self-help stuff and I'm about to talk about Renwood in a moment she completely goes through this sort of reverse makeover where she goes from being really beautiful and glamorous and feminine and over the course of this illness she completely changes she's in simple clothing no makeup she puts her hair back in a ponytail she starts to sleep separately from her husband her life becomes very austere and ascetic almost there's certain foods that she won't eat um i don't know if it goes into that but she is trying to keep the toxins away from her she has an oxygen tank she has a surgeon's mask that she wears when she goes out in public in many ways she's almost reinventing herself and her life through this illness that the illness itself has divested her and stripped her of that previous identity that she had and so she needs this new identity she needs to know how to make sense of herself and she comes to that through through the illness in an interesting way she like i said she takes these supplements and vitamins she listens to listens to lectures about environmental illness and chemical sensitivity so she's educating herself about that she is as much as possible trying to keep herself safe to keep herself protected from the fumes and the chemicals and the toxins that are part of her everyday life and i think the transformation of her is really complete after she has that seizure at the dry cleaners that's when she ends up in the hospital it's when again the doctor tells her there's nothing showing up on the test and he's really questioning if her illness is real asking what could be causing her issues and she says that it's the chemicals that are causing her illness and in this exchange with the doctor she's actually very forceful 
you know, throughout the film, maybe up to that point, well, throughout the film, she still has the same sort of very high-pitched, breathy, sweet voice. Um, she almost sounds like a little girl at times. You know, she has that sort of like teenage sound to her voice that sort of infantilizes her. Not that I'm putting down people that have a high-pitched voice. I'm not doing that. But I'm saying within this film, I think that that tone of voice is there for a reason. That there's so many things that indicate Carol's sort of infantilization in the film. But once she becomes sick, she changes. Her her attitude changes, I think. I think that she becomes a bit more forceful. And I think that being sick actually forces her out of her complacence. She has to fight for herself. And her voice does change. She's just not as sweet and subservient and pliable anymore as she was at the beginning of the film. She is having to learn about things. She's having to educate herself. She's having to take notice of the world, right? And she's no longer protected from it. It it takes her out of that complacency, I think, where she learns about things that are outside of her life in the San Fernando Valley and the other housewives and that world. And so while she's in the hospital, that's when she sees the ad for Renwood. Earlier, she had been at a gym and she had seen this flyer that asked, are you allergic to the 20th century? I still think that's a fascinating phrase. I don't know if that was Renwood, though, but she had been going progressively she had been going to meetings about environmental illness and about what was going on there and and what that was about and so when she sees this ad for Renwood that's where she finally comes to the epiphany that she needs to go there and so it is this retreat and this sort of treatment center in New Mexico and and founded by Peter Dunning a man named Peter Dunning in the film and Peter Dunning is played by Peter Friedman And he's excellent in this film, like truly excellent. And so Renwood is like a self-help place, really. And they have alternative methods for dealing with environmental illness. And so that's where Carol decides that she needs to go. This is like, this is where she's been heading. You know, this is where her journey is going to take her, is Renwood. It's a very strange place. It's in the desert. And there's something very lunar about that landscape. It's just these hills and this sort of bare earth. There's not many trees. It's very different from the world that she inhabited in the San Fernando Valley. She's out in New Mexico. And there's just something lunar about it. Almost alien about that landscape to me. It always like looks like Mars or something to me. Like this other planet. And it's a strange place. Peter Dunning, he's the founder, the guru, and he ha- he has a mansion. So he, they say in the ad that it's nonprofit, but I don't know. This is someone who is living in the lap of luxury, really, while the people that go to Renwood live in these little cabins and huts. There's there's a question there about Peter, and he says that he has AIDS, and also that he has environmental illness. We don't know how much we can trust Peter, really. You know, he comes off sort of like a snake oil salesman, how a lot of these self-help gurus come off. And the place is really strange. The meals are silent. Men and women are separated uh, for the most part. They don't want people really having sex. 
and everybody dresses really modestly. Carol goes to that first meeting, and at the end of it, I thought this was really interesting, uh, after she's met everybody and, and all that, all together, Peter has them say, we are safe and all is well in our world. And so I think Carol has traded the safety of her gated home for the apparent safety of Renwood. Uh, and this is the answer that she's been seeking and searching for, is that she wants this illness, obviously, to go away. She wants to get better. She wants a cure. She wants to know what is wrong with her. And because her main doctor and the medical establishment in general could not give those answers to her, she becomes even more susceptible to these self-help messages, to the message that you are to blame for what is wrong with you. That's really what Renwood is. That's really what a lot of self-help is about. It is about placing the blame and the burden on the individual. And Todd Haynes specifically wanted to look at that ideology or that philosophy. I remember years ago, I don't know how long it was, uh, when The Secret was really big. And I remember that Oprah was a big advocate of it. And it became huge. There was a book, there was all kinds of things. And to me, it's one of the most cruel things I've ever come across. It upset me terribly when I heard about The Secret and when I watched some of the shows about it because the primary, the primary message of it was that you attract what happens to you. So if you have cancer, you attracted that. It's this law of attraction bullshit. If tragedy strikes you, you attracted it. I thought then and I still think that it is one of the most cruel and appalling philosophies that I've ever come across. And the fact that Oprah advocated for it and promoted it is I think one of the worst things she's ever done and also having Jenny McCarthy on her show when Jenny McCarthy was spewing all her anti-vaccine stuff and saying that vaccines caused autism when we literally have so many studies that show that that is not true I still remember seeing that episode with Jenny McCarthy and she was dating Jim Carrey at the time actually And she went on Oprah and she was talking about vaccines. And of course, it's gotten even worse with social media and the anti-vaccine movement. And there's a huge, huge measles outbreak right now across the country and especially in New York right now. And we had basically eradicated measles in the United States like around 2000, I think. And it's coming back with a vengeance and it's endangering people's lives and their health. So I have a huge problem, you know, with ideas like that. I think that self-help is, I think it can be dangerous. The thing about Renwood and Peter is that it puts, uh, it puts the burden on the individual rather than, than society, right? Instead of thinking about deregulation, you know, and how it is that we can allow toxins in products or how deregulation has led to a lot of issues, with our drinking water, with our environment, um, or with corporations, allowing corporations to do whatever they want. Or if you think about something like Flint, Michigan, where it was the local government people changed the pipes and just the horrific damage that that did to people's lives and bodies. We focus on the individual. So that's what self-help does. That's what these groups do. It's what Renwood does. 
is they are completely depoliticizing these issues that are often deeply political. I think that self-help is also dangerous because by saying that the individual is responsible solely, um, it lets systemic forces off the hook. It prevents an engagement with the political reality of our culture and what's being done to the earth and to our food and to drinking water and so on. It prevents political action because it isolates people. And Carol is deeply isolated within herself. Even if you think about diseases like heart attacks, diabetes, that are often associated with our diet and the food that we eat, even then we still blame people. We say, oh, you shouldn't eat that. Well, that completely ignores the fact that fruits and vegetables vegetables are more expensive that we have big farm big agriculture right where there's a lot of corn and high fructose corn syrup in our food and when you go to a grocery store that's what almost everything is so instead of blaming the environment instead of trying to change the environment and the systemic forces uh, that are going on in people's lives we just blame them because it's easier to blame them. It's so much easier to blame the person than to say, oh, well, we need to make sure we have regulations in place when it comes to chemicals and toxins and pollution. Uh, We need to rein in these corporations and big businesses that pollute and do all of that. Oh, we need to change uh, our food system. It, those are such massive issues that people don't even know what to do about. It's like with global warming and climate change. We are, even now, we're focusing too much on individual choices. On, well, let's get rid of, rid of plastic bags and straws. I'm, I'm sure those will help a little bit. But we are at like a tipping point. We might be beyond the tipping point. And whether you use a plastic bag or a plastic straw is not going to change the reality of global warming. Even now, we are still so focused on individual actions instead of, well, who's polluting the damn earth? Well, it's a lot of corporations, isn't it? And why hasn't government put more money into hydro and wind power and alternative sources of power from from oil, you know, and, and all of that? These are big issues and they need big solutions. They don't need individual solutions. That's the problem I have with that is that then you go on and you start to blame the poor or blame people who want to use a fucking plastic straw. You know, it's absurd to me because we just want to blame individuals constantly in our society instead of looking at systemic forces. And Todd talks about Renwood in that interview with Allison McLean for Bomb Magazine in 1995. He said, quote, I discovered for myself at least that whether the problem is the chemicals in our society or the conditions in which this woman is living, in both cases the problem is cultural. And most of the time it's a combination of both, emotional and physiological concrete. Carol goes to Renwood, a New Age health center, to try and find all the answers and is told to find them within herself. Renwood's project is to internalize everything as psychological, an issue of self-love or self-hate. My tendency is to look at the world we live in and the conditions we all share. Ultimately, society is what determines either the material or the psychological manifestation of the illness, unquote. 
And Todd Haynes also based Renwood on a yoga center. It was called Crippaloo, he said. There were certain things that happened at this yoga center that he incorporated into the way that he constructed Renwood. So she gets these messages, are you allergic to the 20th century? But then she goes to Renwood and is told, it's all you. You don't love yourself enough. You, you are making yourself sick. That's the message that she gets at Renwood. And after that first meeting, that first day when she shows up and she goes back to her cabin, you know, after they've all said in unison, we are safe and all is well in our world, you know, they're creating this very isolated world. Um, Carol goes back to her cabin and she just starts crying. She just starts sobbing because I think she's just as alone at Renwood as she was in her home. (laughs) Because because everyone is ill, you know, because everyone is struggling with illness, there is not an intimacy because everybody's terrified of everything. They're terrified of the chemicals, the fumes of one another, of touching one another, the fragrance they could have or something on their skin or something like that. There is this fear of one another too, even though there is this sense of togetherness and it's a, it's a way of living communally. And she certainly finds more solidarity and understanding at Renwood than she did at home. You know, her husband doesn't understand what she's going through. Rory, her stepson, doesn't understand either. But she goes back to her cabin and she's crying. I got the sense that she felt really alone. One of the women who have been at Renwood for a while uh, comes by and sees her crying and starts talking to her. Her name is Claire. And she talks about how when she first got to Renwood, she couldn't even walk. She would sit in her safe room and she would tell herself every day, she would look in the mirror and she would say, I love you. I love you. She would tell herself that she loved herself over and over again. And after like a month of doing this, she was feeling a lot better. And this is very important because of the ending that I'll talk about in a minute. But for me, this was an interesting scene because the message that Renwood send is incredibly contradictory. On the one hand, it is affirming this idea that it's the chemicals and it's the environment that is affecting the people there. Or they know that these people have environmental illness or that they think they have environmental illness. And they are creating a space where that's acknowledged and I guess believed. And then on the other hand, Renwood and Peter and the people in the program, they tell Carol that it's actually them not loving themselves that causes their illness. And to me, that's contradictory. On the one hand, you're saying that, oh, it's the environment. It's this stuff that's outside of you. But then on the other hand, Renwood is saying, oh, no, it's inside you. You are the source of your illness. You are the source of this terrible thing that is happening to you. If saying I love you over and over again can somehow cure you, then did you ever have an actual illness? If, if you can control it with your mind, then are you really sick? Is it psychosomatic? And I think that Renwood is saying both of those messages at the same time. And it reminds me of another scene in the film. This was very early. And so she goes to this meeting about environmental illness. And afterwards, she sits with some of the women who were in the meeting. And they're sitting and they're talking about what they've been through. So these groups are actually kind of important 
the and Renwood is important in this way too, in that it connects Carol with other people who have something similar to what she has and that they don't understand what is wrong with them. They don't have a diagnosis. They don't have an answer. So they're in that liminal space, sort of, I guess that purgatory where they're, they're ill. They know something's wrong, but they don't know what it is. And that's a difficult, that's a difficult place to inhabit. And at least with the meetings, it gives her a place. It gives her a place to go to commiserate at least with other people. But these women are sitting and they're talking about how doctors don't believe them and how their husbands don't believe them either. And one woman brings up the question of how can it be psychosomatic? I guess something's wrong with her son. And she's saying, you know, what person would make themselves sick? What person would want to be sick and have these issues? Um, how would her child make his own eyes swell shut? So there's also a question in the film about, is it psychosomatic? Is that possible when they have very, phys- very physical manifestations of what they're going through? And so at Renwood, there's that contradictory message, you know. Yes, it can be environmental, the fumes and the toxins and the chemicals, but then over and over again, what they start to be told at Renwood is that it's about you not loving yourself enough, that you need to love yourself. And if you have trauma in your past, if you were abused, you need to forgive that person. If you're mad at someone, you need to forgive them. And so that is really beaten into them. It's almost like a cult-like group, I would say, with Renwood a bit. It's constantly individualized. That it is your fault. You are to blame for this. Over and over again. And then there's this very uh, haunting person at Renwood. And his name is Lester. And he just briefly shows up in the film. He's wrapped in this bodysuit. He's covered from head to toe completely almost. And Carol's talking to Peter at the time. And Peter says that Lester is afraid to eat, afraid to breathe. This is someone who has completely separated himself from the world and walks around in this bodysuit and literally cannot be in the world and is terrified to eat anything, to breathe in the air. And he's just this haunting figure. I mean, watching the film again, I was like, that is the scariest, creepiest thing I've ever seen is this guy just walking through this landscape, this lunar almost, you know, Martian landscape in his full body suit, terrified of the world, terrified of the air and everything that is around him. And that's what so many people at Renwood feel. And so it seems doubly cruel that the message at Renwood is that it's your fault. But at the same time, I understand why Carol is susceptible to it, that the, the medical establishment and her doctor can't give her an answer so if it's not showing up on the tests if it's if she's being told this is not real you know nothing on the test says that you're ill there is nothing wrong with you you must be making it up or you must be causing it in some way and so with that message from the outside world from the doctors from these men well of course She's going to turn inward. She's going to blame herself. She's going to focus on the self. And what can I do to change this? How can I love myself enough to get rid of this illness? 
It's heartbreaking. It's actually a really heartbreaking message. To be told you are the reason that you're sick. You made yourself sick. But in the absence of any other answer, that is what Carol clings to. Because it represents for her, I think, a possible cure. Well, if I love myself, then I'll be okay. If I can just love myself enough, I won't be sick anymore. And there's such a sadness about that to me. One of the members at Renwood named Nell, her husband dies. And her husband had erected this white igloo where he had lived. And it's very isolated and very separate. And Carol ends up moving into this white igloo. And her husband and Rory comes and they help her move in. It's just so sad to watch because, and Todd talked about this in interviews, that he felt like really there's this perfect circle in the film. That she's alone at the beginning and she's alone at the end. And in the middle, there was maybe some hope and some possibility for her through fellowship, through solidarity, through these groups, through uh, a sense of community. But ultimately, because of the illness that she has, she keeps quarantining and separating herself from other people. She feels like she has to in order to preserve her health. And she's separate from her husband. He can't even really touch her. I mean, they sort of hug when he leaves after he's helped her move move into the igloo. But overall, she's just completely alone. She tells him it's only temporary. and But... I, you don't know if it is for her, for Carol. She is just so alone. But she's even more alone at the end of the film than she was at the beginning. I mean, I guess at the at the beginning, at least she had like these fake friendships with these women. <laughs> you know, she would go out to lunch. You know, she would go to these different places and she was living in the world. She was able to exist in it. But by the end of the film, she's in this little room by herself completely quarantined and isolated from the world there's a sadness about it and so she moves into the igloo and then there's this night where her and this other member this guy named Chris they cook for the other people at Renwood they end up cooking lasagna it's actually Carol's birthday and so at that party everybody sings for her and wishes her a happy birthday and she has to make like a little speech you can tell that she's really uncomfortable with it. There's something about Carol for me that she's always tried to make herself very small and invisible. I think that comes through with her voice. It, you know, it was such a whispery, light voice. Often she doesn't talk a lot. She doesn't share a lot with people. You know, even when she was in the psychiatrist's office and he asked her what was going on in her, she couldn't find the language for it. She is not able to articulate her feelings and her experience. And so when she has to give this speech, you can tell that she's really uncomfortable with it. But she says that before she came to Renwood, she really hated herself. And that now she's trying to love herself more and be more positive and to see the good things in herself. By the end of the film, Carol has completely started to take on the language of Renwood the philosophy of Renwood and in that speech you can see it that she has shifted she's pivoted really into this idea that she has caused her illness that she needs to love herself she needs to focus on herself in order to cure her illness and to 
be healthier or to feel better. And so the the ending is incredibly haunting for me. And I wonder if it is for a lot of people. She After that party, she goes back to the igloo. Chris walks her to the igloo. And she's smiling and she actually seems kind of upbeat and happy, actually. So there is like, there does seem to be a kind of happiness to her, even even though she's going through so much, obviously. And she goes into her igloo. You know, she's alone. She looks in the mirror. She goes over to it. And she says, I love you. I love you. Over and over again. It represents the fact that she has completely bought into Renwood's philosophy. She's completely bought into the idea that if she loves herself enough, she won't be sick anymore. And there's just, for me, there's something incredibly heartbreaking about that. I think that ending is not hopeful at all. I would not, I don't see it that way at all. The, it's, it's a sad ending. It's a heartbreaking ending that she believes she's the cause of her own illness. And she has completely internalized that idea from Renwood. And she will probably remain trapped in it. And she will blame herself. I just, I find that really heartbreaking. I don't think she is the cause of her illness. I do think that Safe is saying something about the world we live in. Not just the world that existed in 1995, but the world that exists in 2019. With environmental degradation, with pollution, with toxins and chemicals and all of that. I think in a way that perhaps Carol is allergic, not just to the 20th century, but allergic to the world that capitalism and neoliberalism have created. And that is the world we all live in. I think that's the world that she is allergic to. Um, capitalism and neoliberalism have, inc- have really created an increasingly hostile and uninhabited world for people and for animals through global warming, through pollution, through toxins, through contamination. That is the world that it's created. And I don't know if any kind of revolution is going to happen to change it or how we are going to survive the world that is to come. Uh, and that has been put into motion through global warming and other other things. The world that the rich and the powerful have created for all of us. And so I think this film resonates even more because of the current issues that we face. What I think the film can warn us about and show us is to not individualize these issues. To not place the burden and the blame on individuals, whether it's environmental illness or other things that we're dealing with, like global warming and pollution and and other things like that, that we've got to look at the larger issues, the larger system, the larger world. We've got to look beyond the individual because it's much too easy to blame one person when there are forces so much larger than us that have helped to create this increasingly uninhabitable and toxic world that we live in. And I think that's what makes SAFE so incredibly powerful. So I think I think SAFE works on a number of levels. It works on a personal level for me and my own issues with chronic illness 
and not understanding what is wrong with my body, being dismissed by doctors, and really struggling with the fear and the anxiety that all of that has caused. The film speaks to me and resonates with me in that way, and I do think it's looking at the sexism in the medical establishment to some extent and what Carol goes through. But while it works on that personal level for me, I think it also works on a larger level of looking at the world we inhabit, looking at the toxins, the chemicals. You know, I've often put on deodorant or, you know, sprayed fragrance and wondered, you know, is this stuff safe? Do we really know if it's safe? What are the regulations put in place? Are they keeping us safe? They aren't always. There is deregulation. There are issues like that. And I think that this film raises that too, of pointing our gaze to the larger world, to the government, to structural and and, um, systemic issues, looking at pollution and global warming and all those things. That's why I love the ambiguity of the film, because I guess some people could say it's psychosomatic. But I don't think you can argue completely that it's psychosomatic because of the chemicals and the fumes and the different experiences that Carol has. Maybe she is allergic to the world she lives in and that that world is toxic for many of us and that nothing's being done about that and that it's actually just getting worse. And maybe people like Carol or people with these environmental illnesses, maybe it's a warning to all of us that Some people do have these sensitivities and that any of us could maybe develop them over the course of our lives. I mean, I've heard of people getting asthma because they work with cleaning stuff. They might have a job as a maid or or where they're having to use cleaning chemicals and they can actually develop asthma from that. And there are health issues that can come from being in workplaces like asbestos and different things in the air and fibers and fumes that affect people's health or think about 9-11 think about coal mining people who have breathed in that dust and that smoke and those toxins and developed cancer from it and develop health problems as a result that people are people's safety is not being looked after in those uh, instances or on the job And companies are getting away with that and putting their workers in unsafe conditions. So I'm just saying that the film works on multiple levels and makes you think about maybe your own personal experience with illness, if you have that. But also makes you think about the world we're living in, the world that's being created by these forces that are larger than us, that has an effect on our drinking water, on our food, on on the safety of the world we live in and what is in the air and what's happening to animals and to other species and how they're dying out and be and going extinct. So that's why I think it's a film really, it's a film for our time. I think it will continue to be a relevant film as we continue to deal with these issues. So I love this film. I think it's now really one of my favorites due to my personal uh, emotions, but also what it makes me think about. Thank you so much for listening. I hope I did this film justice. I really tried hard. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.